If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Just one other word on the potluck tonight. I remember last year a couple of people who had never come to that came out and found out that McKinnon Park is relatively large. Um, And uh, and so the potluck where we meet is in the northeast quarter of the the park. There's a a shelter up there. It's just south of the tennis courts. And, uh, And there's a little uh, parking lot over on that side too, and it's just north of that parking lot. So between the parking lot and the tennis courts, uh, that's where you will uh, find us at six o'clock. It is a lovely spot, uh, and so you you don't you don't want to miss it tonight at uh, at six o'clock. Um, well, let's. I'll have you stand one more time as we read first. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us this morning. Father, we have come and we have been singing praises to your name. We have been making a joyful noise to you as the rock of our salvation. Lord, we have acknowledged that we have countless things to praise you for, central to them, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death on the cross, as we have just been singing. And so, Lord, we praise you for your kindness, for your loving kindness, for your grace, for your forgiveness. For you are a great God. You are the king over all the authorities of the earth and beyond. Your hands control the deepest seas to the highest mountains, to the highest heavens. You have made it all. You have formed it all. You control it all, and our times are in your hands. And Lord, we pray for those who find themselves in uncertain times, in their own lives, with physical uncertainty that has them at the hospital, physical uncertainty that has them awaiting test results over the next number of days, physical challenges that have them awaiting 
treatments, surgery, just around the corner and the anticipated recovery that goes with all of that. And in our broader families, this would amount to quite a number of people. And so, Lord, we come and we worship and we bow down before you and we ask for your mercy for our lives and for the people of our families and friends, our congregation. Lord, we ask that this day you would enable us to hear your voice through Peter. And in hearing your voice, come to hold really exalted views of the Lord Jesus Christ, his majesty, his power, his importance. May he be majestic and powerful and important to us this day and forever. And guard us, Lord, from just wandering off, becoming the victim of our culture with its mass of deceptions that threaten us and that tempt us to move in foolish, foolish directions. But Lord, we also pause to thank you this morning for the opportunity that many in the congregation had this past week to work with kids, our own children, and others from beyond our congregation who came together around your words and shared and thought and sang and learned. And we pray for the messages that went home with those kids each evening, uh, that even as they are gathered here this day, that they would remember how awesome you really are, and they would stand amazed before you, and that they would learn how awesome the Lord Jesus Christ is and come to rest all their hope in him. We ask you to help them to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe see it. The New Testament tells us that Peter possessed an, an incredibly lofty view of the Lord Jesus Christ and that it was among the central aims of his life to pass such a lofty view of the Christ onto us as well. In a dispute with the Jewish leaders that's recorded in Acts chapter 4, Peter gives this summary statement as to how lofty and important Jesus is, reading into verse 12 from verse 8. Here's how Luke recorded it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. 
and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that's a grand statement. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. What Peter means is that apart from a certain kind of connection with Jesus, it is impossible for anyone to have a right standing with God. No one, apart from Jesus, is ready to meet the living God in death or at the end of the age. No one. There is no other name under heaven by which a person can be right with God than the name Jesus. That's the claim. My sister Laura will be 72 years old this fall. And she's not really slowing down all that much. Um, A few weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with she and her husband, Rick. And they were in Kathmandu, Nepal. uh, And they were running literacy uh, classes there uh, under the assumption that you use the teaching of reading to share the gospel, but more importantly, in the long run, that you teach people to read so that they might be able to read the gospel for themselves, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there they were in Kathmandu. The next Friday, uh, they were in a city to the northwest in India, just inside Uh, the border from Pakistan. And they were doing the same thing there. Uh, Literary classes for the same reason. And the next Friday, uh, they were back now to the western uh, part of India, just across the border from Nepal. And uh, they were doing the same thing there. So why in the world would you be running around the globe when you're in your 70s, trying to teach people to read. Why would you do that? Well, because there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven that is under the sun Anywhere on earth, there is no other name anywhere on earth 
by which we must be saved. Uh, Peter's not a pluralist. Uh, Peter is making a really bold claim here. Peter is claiming Islam can't help anybody with God. Hinduism can't help anybody with God. Even a Christless Judaism can't help anyone with God. There is no other name under heaven given among men that can enable a person to be placed right with God. Now we're going to uh, uh, come at this this morning from uh, three uh, broad angles. Um, And they are all Christologically related. Uh, By Christology, mean the study of the Christ. Theology, the study of God. Christology, the study of Christ. For instance, G.C. Burkauer's 14-volume Studies in Dogmatic Theology. He has two volumes uh, related to this. One's called uh, uh, The Person of Christ, and the other's called The Work of Christ. Those would be his two volumes on Christology. And Peter, in this brief little text, is teaching us something about Christology. And he's he's asking us really this question in these two verses. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Um... It's a really, really good question uh, to pose to yourself. Most people in America, they, would, they don't make much of Jesus at all. Uh, all this talk of Jesus just doesn't mean much of anything to them. Jesus in our culture is, is really of no consequence. Uh, don't really believe in God, not worried about Uh, God uh, most of the time, hardly ever think of him. Uh, Would officially believe, uh, if we understand ourselves truly to be, you know, following the science in the broad way that it's taught in a university classroom that nothing awaits us in death but uh, conscious non-existence. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. There it is. That's all there is to it. Um, And Peter's saying to them, well, at least know this, as you say something like that. You're betting your very soul on that position. It's not not a position with no implications. You're, You're betting your soul on it. But somebody responds to Peter, and that's where the essence of our text is. So, well, what makes you so sure that you know what you're talking about? And that's the question Peter wants to answer in these two verses. 
He's answering the question, what makes me so sure that Jesus is all that I understand him to be? And here's his answer, verses 16 and 17. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Summarized Peter's thesis this way. A disciple is a person who makes much of Jesus. Dan reminded us again this morning when he was giving the announcement, we are becoming disciples. Pastor Don reminds us every week, we are becoming disciples. A way that you could say that is we are becoming people who make much of Jesus. We are increasingly to find ourselves becoming people who make more and more of Jesus as time goes on. And so again, to put that in the terms of the study of the Christ, Christology, our first point. Christology is not based on mythology. Christology is not based on mythology. Listen to the first part of verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is precisely what the broader secular society accuses uh, Christianity of doing today. And it's the same thing that many accused Peter of doing in the first century. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Christianity's claims in the first century, the accusation was, oh, those are just based on cleverly devised myths. You're just being... uh, manipulative. And and it's the same today. Uh, High-minded, very secular society like our own, especially the higher you go in the academic levels, uh, it's just uh, assumed. Assumed. Well, of course, all of this religious business is just manipulative stuff. It's based on cleverly devised myths, uh, and these mythologies are developed to uh, manipulate to the right and the left. You know, Freud had it going both ways. You know, on the one hand, um, hope for heaven, well, that's just wish fulfillment. You want a magic father who comes down and saves you and provides heaven for you. But, of course, uh, also then it it works the other way. Well, and then you manipulate people by threatening them with punishment and therefore trying to get them in in, in line. And then that's the very 
you know, kind of thing that the Marxists all help us deconstruct so that we don't get pulled in uh, to any of that. That's this patriarchal God who's manipulative in the extreme, in the extreme. And so all that you Christians are, are talking about is, is cleverly devised myths. But you ever notice how, how often in our public discourse a secularist is ever really asked to explain their own position? How often they're asked to ever answer some of the more difficult questions that, that they might face in trying to be consistent with their own view you know, that there was an explosion 18 billion years ago that became the universe. And that cells came to life on, on, on this planet. Now, this is the only planet we know about that has living cells on it, though we imagine there could. But as far as, as, far as the science actually goes... This is the only planet that we know of that has any life on it. Uh, well, but, and those cells developed into higher uh, life forms. Uh, they, they just they tend in, in that direction. There's no mind behind them. There's nobody pulling any strings. There's just, there's just stuff. Um, it's, it's remarkably developing stuff. Uh, I mean, around 1859, we figured out that it's, it's evolving. It's becoming uh, clearly one form of higher life uh, than the next, than the next. This is the science, and this is what scientific people believe. And it's, 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 really, it's really pretty straightforward. This is the science. Nothing mythological about this. This is the science. Nobody's ever asked, like, so what did you use to make this discovery? How did you discover it? Well, we did experiments. We thought about it. But, yeah, but, like, what did you use to do the experiments? Like, were, were puppies doing these? No, no, human beings were doing the experiments. Oh, and what did they use? Well, they used their minds. That's what they used. Use the old noggin. And they did. But you've explained that the old noggin is just randomly moving molecular matter. I mean, really, what are the chances that randomly moving molecular matter will unlock? the fact that there was an explosion 18 billion years ago. I'm telling you, I think it would strike an honest person as a stretch. It almost sounds like a mythology. A story 
It it can't quite hold together. So, well, what what would you say all these scientific discoveries? Because they are amazing. I'm only still alive today because of the advancement of science and the kind of things that they could do down at the heart hospital, I'll tell you. It's, it's miraculous. It's incredible. But, of course, Peter's explanation would, for that would be, well, yeah, but that was done by creatures created in the image of God. Therefore, you might not be totally surprised to find some pretty extraordinary accomplishments by creatures created in the image of God. Um, Peter says, we have not been, very literally what he writes is, we have not been made wise by myths when we talk to you about the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would claim we've been made wise by divine revelation when I talk to you about the power and coming of Jesus Christ. According to the author of 1 Peter, here's how powerful the Christ is. Excuse me, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3. Here's how powerful the Christ is. And he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So there is God. He's rational. He's created a rational universe. He's created a mathematical universe. Um, and we can unpack it and we can do math because we're created in his image. Secularists really do end up with this. They have a rational explanation of the universe, which is grounded in the irrational random movement of molecules. So you have a, a massive, massively impressive rationalism built on an absolutely irrational base. That sounds mythological to me. Peter says, that's not us. That's not us. Our views of the Lord Jesus Christ are based on a rational divine revelation when we're told that we're created in the image of God and the God who created us has sent his Son into the world, and he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholds all the universe by the word of his power. And he is coming again. Power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power and coming. Now that's, again, this, this coming of the Lord Jesus. Is, he's, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. He's the ultimate arbiter of what goes on on the human planet Earth, within the human race. Here's how Paul described it. Second 
Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Peter says, that's not based on myth. That's not the kind of thing that you hear on all-night AM radio. That's not the kind of thing that you find in comic books. That's the kind of thing that you find in the Bible. That's the kind of thing. Christology isn't based on myths. It's based on divine revelation. Secondly, Christology is related to eyewitness testimony. Last little phrase of verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I don't know how well Peter and Luke knew each other and how the uh, Luke writes quite a bit about Peter, quite a bit of detail about conversations that Peter had. He may have gotten that secondhand, but he certainly could have gotten it firsthand. They're both first century figures. They're in the Christian church. When the Christian church is excessively small and people are regularly going back to Jerusalem, we don't, we don't really know about uh, those kinds of connections in, uh, in any detail. But I do think that it is striking that in Luke's account, in Luke's account of the events that Peter is referring to here, because there's the scholars all agree when he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty uh, because of what he goes on to quote uh, we know that what he has in mind is what we call uh, the transfiguration. That's what Peter is remembering. The transfiguration. Uh, uh, that was already read as part of the service this morning. So let me reread uh, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 9:28 uh, and following. And this one is connected to Peter's terminology thematically. Uh, uh, The word that Peter uses, majesty, is not here. It's not here in this paragraph. Uh, But you can see the synonym that that is here uh, that Peter would be um, remembering. And we'll see how Luke describes it when we get to verse 32. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and they became fully awake, and they saw his glory. There's his majesty thematically. So, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw 
his glory and the two men who stood with him. And Peter said, "Uh, Master, it's really, really a good thing that we are here. Well, in the next paragraph, they come down from the mountain. They come down from the mountain. And in the next story, Luke uses the same word for majesty that Peter uses. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Uh, Once by Luke in the Gospel, once by Luke in the Acts, and in the Acts version, it's on the lips of of pagans who are um, talking about the majesty of their own pagan deities. And then Peter, speaking of the same incident that Luke is writing about as they come down the mountain. So here, picking it up in verse 37, Luke 9, 37. The next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I with you? And bear with you. Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Peter says, I've seen were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're witnesses of his majesty when this father brings this boy and Jesus speaks a word and suddenly the boy is healed. He says, I'm not making up things I don't know anything about. This is not stuff again that I've read in a comic book or heard forth hand. I have been I witness to this kind of majesty. I was on that mountain. I was at this healing. And many others like it. John, at the end of his gospel, says more like it than he has time to tell. In the first paragraph, it's a thematic tie. In the second paragraph, it's a linguistic tie to the same thing, to the majesty of Jesus. And Peter is saying, my lofty language, my lofty view of Jesus is not grounded in mythology. It's grounded in personal experience, historical eyewitness testimony. I've seen the majesty Thirdly, finally, Christology is based on divine revelation. 
And when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice came to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So not only has Peter seen things as an eyewitness, he's heard things with his own ears. Uh, he's heard, and he's seen, and he's seen, and he's heard. Um, the Father caused the glory of the Son to shine, and they saw it. It was divine revelation up on the mountain. The Father caused the power of the Christ to manifest itself in the healing of the boy, and they saw it. The Father spoke up on the mount, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And they, they heard it. That's divine revelation. That's the foundation of the Christian faith, that God has spoken, that he's revealed himself to us in, by means of uh, divine revelation. As I say, Peter saw many other things. He saw Jesus walk on the water. He saw 5,000 men fed with a boy's lunch, and, and on and on uh, you might go. And, and he's just saying to us, do you know Jesus to be? this great, majestic person. Do you relate to Jesus in your life as to this incredibly majestic, overwhelming person that he is? Remember how it was put back in verse 11, chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, 11. For in this way they were richly provide, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The eternal kingdom of our Lord, who is our Savior. And then he says, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. The majestic Christ who is Lord. The majestic Christ, who is the Savior. And all of chapter 1 is about, how do you know that you've come to know Him? How do you know that you have a saving connection to Him? And that's what Peter's been writing about all through the whole first chapter, all the way back in verse 3. By His divine power, He has granted us the things that are pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and great promises, so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of desire. For this very reason, make every effort and supplement by means of your faith, virtue, and by means of your virtue, knowledge, and on his, he goes until he says, and if these things are yours and are increasing, then you know, then your calling and election is sure. So you and I, we're not, supposed to, not just supposed to know that Jesus is incredible, but that we are definitely connected with him. He's our Savior. He's our God. 
He's our everlasting friend. We belong to his kingdom through faith. Through faith. That's what it means to be, as Paul puts it over in 2 Corinthians 5.17, in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in the Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All of this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. So Peter's saying, this isn't mythology. I've seen it. I've heard it. I know it. Jesus is unbelievably important. Do we see him that way? It's not easy to do in America. Jesus is of relatively no importance in America. He's of no importance on sitcom television. We watch sitcom television. He's of no importance in the movies. We watch the movies. He's of no importance in the newspaper. Well, we read the newspaper. On most sites, he's of no importance in the Internet. He's not a big deal at Fox News or CNN or ABC or CBS. He's nothing in the New York Times. He's nothing in the American University system. He's nothing at Harvard. He's nothing at Yale. He's nothing at Princeton. He's nothing. He's nothing at Oxford. He's nothing. He's nothing in the Biden administration. He was nothing in the Trump administration, and he won't be anything in any administration coming anytime soon. And we get shaped by all of those things mightily shaped by them. Be careful that it doesn't shape you in this way, that Jesus Christ becomes all but nothing to you, relatively unimportant, a little side life, like to your life, to your big life. In Acts chapter 4, they come to Jesus and they come to Peter, I should say, and they tell Peter and John they better quit talking about Jesus or they're going to get in trouble. Just quit talking about him. And here's what Peter says in way of response, together with John. Acts four nineteen and 20, And Peter and John answered him, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you'll have to be the judge of that. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And Peter would say to us, therefore, this majestic view of Jesus that I give to you, it's not a spin-off of some first century mythology. It's a conclusion that I've drawn confidently from the things that I've seen and the things that I've heard as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll close where we open. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Peter is pleading with us, be sure that you make much. Be sure that you make much of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to hear your voice through the word, through the spirit, and that we would make much of you in our lives, in our thinking, in the way that we live, in the way that we pray, the way that we spend our time, the way that we focus our attention, that we would make much of you, we pray, and ask for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.